Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair. And uh, I have a special interview for you today. Uh, in As you've noticed over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking a lot to speakers at an event that's coming up here in Utah, my home state, called the Your Health Freedom Symposium. It's going to be on October 7th. And uh, I will tell you what I've been telling you. Drop whatever you're doing and get to that symposium. It's going to be loaded with fantastic speakers talking about important things that you need to know and a combination of how to take better care of yourself and your health, the health of your family, but also the awareness that you need to have about what's going on politically when it comes to our health, uh, censorship about the things that you really do need to know about, and so on. And uh, today I've got a champion of uh, these things with me, someone who has fought what I believe is a uh, very critical battle over the last few years uh, since uh Everything went crazy in 2020. His name is Dr. Pierre Corey. Pierre, welcome to Vitality Radio. Uh, Jared, thanks. Pleasure to be here. All right. So for those that are unaware of who you are, what you've been doing, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you come from uh, and uh, your history as a doctor, please. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, born and raised in uh, New York uh, in the suburbs and lived in Manhattan for a long time. And um, I went to medical school um, kind of late in life, like 29 when I went off to medical school. Um, I was kind of finding my way in my 20s and uh, always wanted to be a doctor and finally um, became one, uh, went to medical school at 29. And, you know, really my career, I became, um, uh, well, I, I'm board certified in internal medicine, uh, pulmonary diseases, and critical care medicine, which is to say ICU medicine. Everyone, whenever I say critical care, everyone says, oh, you're an emergency doctor. That is not true. I'm an ICU doctor. Okay. I, I, I consider emergency medicine downstairs and ICU is upstairs in the hospital. So gotcha. um, so we, we take care of the sickest of the sick. And uh, my career prior to COVID, um, I was well known for a few things. So um, I, I, I was a master educator, so I won teaching awards at large uh, academic medical centers. I really love teaching, taught residents and fellows and medical students. And I was one of the pioneers in a uh, field within critical care medicine called critical care ultrasonography, where we started using ultrasound ourselves as doctors at the bedside uh, to make life-saving diagnoses. And I wrote, um, as a senior editor of a textbook, uh, which is extremely popular. It's uh, seven languages, second edition, and really a, a top-selling textbook, um, which the royalties of which I could buy maybe dinner for you and I, um, but that's that's <laughs> textbook royalties. So, but I'm well, still proud. I look forward to that dinner in October then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I was well-known in that field. And then a couple other fields, I, I was also an expert in something called therapeutic hypothermia. And um when COVID hit, I was the chief of the critical care service at the University of Wisconsin, and I was the medical director of their, um, what's called the Trauma and Life Support Center, which was their main medical surgical ICU. So I was, you know, I was uh, pretty high up in, in clinical academics um, within my specialty, and I was uh, pretty well published, and uh, things were going just fine in my career. 
<laughs> All right. And then something <laughs> happened in 2020. Yeah. Uh, I bet so, every, everybody listening probably knows a little bit about that. Tell us what happened with you. Yeah. So everything changed in my life and my career. So, you know, what happened was when COVID hit, right, and we saw like, uh, you know, the images out of Wuhan and, and you know, ICUs filling in the hazmat suits. And then we saw Lombardy get hit um, and, you know, New York and then Seattle. You know, myself and a close group of my colleagues, not at University of Wisconsin, I had a broad network, but, you know, one in particular, Professor Paul Marek, who's actually the most published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty. And, you know, I got to be colleagues and friends with him a few years before COVID uh, due to our shared interest in actually the efficacy of intravenous vitamin C in severe sepsis and septic shock. And um, he had come up with a protocol which was transformative. And so we were doing a little research on that together. And anyway, when COVID hit, uh, I mean, we did what we thought everybody, every doctor would do. I mean, we just started vacuuming up like every piece of data we could, you know, anything coming up on preprint servers, anything published, you know, the science, the genetics, uh, the pathophysiology. We were talking to doctors around the world. And, you know, a couple of doctors approached Paul and said, you know, you got to, you know, Paul was putting up a protocol on his medical school website, which was getting some attention. And doctors came and said, no, you need... Get, get five of your close, get, get some close colleagues, get a group of close colleagues, form a group and start putting out guidance on how to treat this thing. And, and that's what we did. And so we, we, uh, we started something that was later called the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And its mission from the beginning was really focused on just developing and disseminating the most effective treatment protocols for COVID. And in those early months, I'd say the first six months of COVID, all we had was a hospital protocol. We were really trying to communicate to doctors and intensivists, you know, ICU specialists around the world, how we were treating it in a hospital. And we were doing really well. I mean, our numbers were great. And it was centered around the use of corticosteroids. And that intravenous vitamin C, we were also aggressive with anticoagulation because of the clotting aspect. So it was an aggressive combination therapy protocol, uh, which we were seeing was reaching phenomenal success. And we were trying to disseminate that. And I would say the first time we came to sort of public attention was when I testified in Senator Ron Johnson's hearings in May of 2020 around the critical need for corticosteroids. And when, when I did that, that was at a time when every national and international healthcare agency in the world was saying, do not use corticosteroids. So that was the first time I kind of went against consensus. When I say I, me and my group, um, and by the way, that group, not only is Professor Marek, but it was also uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Umberto Maduri, who's literally the world expert on the use of corticosteroids in critical illness. So, I mean, I had some, you know, we, we, we were some heavy hitters in this group. Right. I, I mean, we had impeccable credentials, productivity contributions to the field of medicine. And I would have thought that would have carried some weight, um, you know, um, you know, it, it, as we did our work, uh, turned out it didn't really. Um, but anyway, you know, when I testified on the use of critical steroids, I mean, the first thing that came back is I started to get attacked by my own university. You know, my, my superiors were telling me that I was like literally going to harm people and hurt people by this advocacy. Um, because remember all of the societies were saying, don't use it. And here we were, you know, I had a, you know, Senator Johnson invited me into his hearings and I said, it's critical that you use it. 
And so I, I, I was starting to get into a lot of friction with my university and they started doing other stuff beyond the scenes because I had also put intravenous vitamin C on the University of Wisconsin protocol mm-hmm. with the science, with the data. I brought it to the committee and they actually voted to include it in the protocol. But then the dean of the medical school, when he heard that we had a, Jared, wait for it, we had a vitamin on our treatment protocol for COVID. Could you imagine the the lunacy of putting an intravenous vitamin on the protocol? And and what would happen there is I, I I argue in my book they they committed academic misconduct. They put pressure on the therapeutics committee to remove it because the dean did not want the University of Wisconsin associated with vitamin therapy. And when I saw what they did behind the scenes. I said, I'm out. And I resigned. I was the first of three jobs I lost. I resigned from the University of Wisconsin because there's no way. There was a couple of reasons why I resigned. Number one, I saw the, the machinations behind the scenes, which I thought constituted academic misconduct. I saw the lack of respect for my clinical expertise as a clinical leader. Um, and I also resigned from a moral and ethical objection because the institutional policy quickly coalesced around this absurd notion of supportive care only. And so for your listeners, what supportive care means in critical care is literally you just provide them, you know, hydration, food, oxygen, ventilator, but no specific treatments are are offered. It's just supportive care and you hope that the body can heal and fight off this virus. And, you know, supportive care works in many different diseases, especially if you have a healthy uh, patient, you know, the body can fight off a lot of different insults and injuries, but uh, not this one. Not this one, not, not especially not when you get to the ICU. I mean, these people were overwhelmed, deteriorating and dying. And they were literally advocating for supportive care, something I'd never seen in my career. Um, as Paul says, my partner, he says, there is no disease you cannot treat. And I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I resigned there. And then I'll fast forward a little bit for you. So because uh, I'll tell you when, when the going got really rough. But first, let's talk about the successes. So two months after that testimony that I was widely criticized and attacked for, corticosteroids became the standard of care worldwide in the treatment of hospitalized COVID. And that was due to a, a big trial that came out um, out of Oxford University, which showed a massive mortality benefit when you use corticosteroids. So, uh, you know, score one for the FLCCC and Dr. Corey early on. Um, you know, we were we were vindicated for our advocacy, and um, and I think that was important because I think many many lives were saved by finally the adoption of a, a treatment in severe hospitalized illness. So was um, was that the first treatment that wasn't supportive care that was actually embraced? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was the first treatment that was not supportive care. Now, it's not to say that doctors around the country and world weren't trying things. They were individual doctors and intensivists. I mean, there's real doctors out there. I mean, when they see someone deteriorating, I mean, I taught medicine. I mean, kind of the two, the two kind of benchmarks that I would constantly teach my uh, trainees, as I said, you know, if what you're doing is working, keep doing what you're doing. So if you see a positive trajectory in a patient, you know, slow and steady improvements, don't change what you're doing. Don't look for new stuff. You don't have to send them for CAT scans or do anything else. Just trust that they're going to start to recover. But I also would say if what you're doing is not working, change what you're doing. And I think a lot of doctors get that, especially when you're dealing with critical illness with patients with high risk of death. You got to do something, right? And, and especially because, you know, we always make decisions based on risks, benefits, and alternatives to any therapy that we do, at least you're supposed to. And when you see someone deteriorating and approaching death, the risk-benefit ratio changes to try something because you can see that if you do nothing, they are going to die. Right. And so it's reasonable to try that. And so I would say doctors, 
especially in that first wave, um, individual doctors were trying things with their patients. Institutionally, though, there was no institutions that were really adopting uh, treatments and recommending it into their guidelines. And so there, but there was a little latitude and autonomy for individual doctors. Okay. Then fast forward to later in 2020, what, what one of the work, some of the work that we were doing as an organization is that we were tightly following all of the clinical trials data on numbers of therapeutics that were being used around the world. And when you got to about September of October of 2020, that's when the first clinical trial results started being reported, right? Because the pandemic hit, people started doing trials, testing different therapeutics. And so you started to see results like over the late summer, early fall, and everything was turning out to be negative. So things like convalescent plasma, tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 blocker, um, hydroxychloroquine, which is a completely other fraud that we'll talk about. Um, but it, everything seemed to be not working. And But we saw a signal around ivermectin that we'd never seen before. I mean, we were seeing different reports from different centers and countries around the world, which were just large magnitude reductions in mortality, hospitalization, time to recovery. And we were shocked. And um, one of them was published in a, a very reputable journal called Chest within our specialty. It showed a 70% reduction in mortality in the most severely ill. And so we put together an early treatment protocol in October of 2020, uh, centered around the use of ivermectin. You know where this story is going, Jared, and I think your listeners know where this story is going, right? And so... <laughs> Anyone who is paying attention anyway, yeah. Yeah, as soon as they hear the I word, they're like, oh, this is, you know, one of those fringe doctors who thinks that ivermectin works. And <laughs> yeah, this was this was just science. This is objective analysis of science. I mean, we treated ivermectin as any other therapeutic, and we responded to the signal that we saw. And so we put it in our protocol, and then I was invited again to testify uh, in the Senate uh, Homeland um, Security meeting hearing, and uh, I testified on the uh, incredible amounts of data and the, the large magnitude efficacy of ivermectin. And that testimony went viral because I was pretty fired up because uh, of some things that happened in the hearing. I was insulted by my former political party. Um, the, the senator there walked out of the room, claimed that all the experts asked to testify were political actors. And I, I had never been so offended. I mean, I'd literally been drowning in ICU trying to keep patients alive for six months. I was there to bring forth my knowledge and insights and deep research. And I was dismissed as a someone with a political objective. And, right. and I was really, I have a little bit of a temper and I, I gave a pretty fiery testimony and, and it went viral. And, and not only went viral in, in, in this country, on, on one Fox News website, it hit 9 million views, but that wasn't the only website that carried it. It was actually all around the world. I mean, within the, the week that after I testified, I mean, we were getting reached out to by organizations from numerous countries, which immediately translated it, subtitled it, and put it on uh, social media. So it really kind of was like kind of the shot that went around the world. And um, our lives got transformed. And, um, you know, suddenly ivermectin was a topic of discussion, um, right. you know, everywhere. People saw it as a really safe, widely available, repurposed medicine, been used for decades, uh, given out across continents for decades to treat parasitic diseases. It happens to also be a broad antiviral. And and, and that's when, um, you know, so that sounds all real good, right? And uh, it was. I mean, we were so excited that we'd identified an effective therapeutic that worked early. It worked as a preventative. It worked late. And, you know, I thought the world was going to be a different place without sounding grandiose. I mean, we knew we found so I was treating patients with it. And I, I was yeah. shocked at what I was seeing. I mean, I will tell you the very first patient, 
not that I treated. It was the very first patient that I was very well aware of their case. It was um, a CEO of a medical staffing agency who wrote uh, an email to our organization with uh, included a small check. I think it was for like $2,000. And she told me her story because I was so – we hadn't gotten any donations. In fact, the organization was running on my credit card at that point. And I remember I called her and she told me that she had seen my paper, which I posted on a preprint server. And she was quite ill with COVID. She'd been sick for two weeks, fevers, uh, feeling really unwell, couldn't really get out of bed, and took my paper and brought it to her pulmonologist, who saw it, looked over the data, and he said, that seems reasonable. And he tried it. And she took her first tablet of ivermectin on a Sunday night after having a resting heart rate of 120 with fevers for two weeks. Hmm. And she said that she suddenly felt flushed within an hour. She went to bed. And in the morning, her heart was 80. She was afebrile, and she said she felt like completely so much better. And she was so shocked at the response that she enjoyed um, that she was compelled to give us a donation and appreciate our work and what we had done. And that was the first patient. And then I started treating friends, colleagues, uh, you know, anyone who reached out to me. And I saw, at least in the first year, later on, the efficacy was not as strong because the variants kind of weakened. But that first Wuhan alpha strain, I mean, literally almost everyone I treated within 12 to 24 hours were reporting sudden improvements. And so it was, it was quite, it, it was shocking. I, I hadn't used a therapeutic in my career that was that uh, potent. Anyway, um, that's the good part. The bad part is that within two days of that testimony, um, our lives started going sideways, meaning the Associated Press reached out to us uh, for an interview. And we were so excited that the Associated Press wanted to hear about our, our work, our research, our findings. I spent 20, 25 minutes on the phone with the reporter. I was burying her with all the data, all the trials, all that we were learning. And a day later, this article comes out, and it's a complete hit job and attack on ivermectin. In fact, it doesn't mention any of the data. It basically lumps it in with hydroxychloroquine as another drug to debunk. And by the way, this is the beginning of my sociologic, political, you know, geopolitical education. I mean, I, I was a really naive doctor. I mean, I, I say in the book, like I used to read the New York Times. I believed everything it said. I thought Fauci was a sympathetic fella doing the best job he could with, you know, with a lot of critics. You know, I, I had this very positive, I had an implicit faith and trust in the institutions of society. And, and then I saw an institution, which is the Associated Press, do something that I found deplorable. I, 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 I mean, we were shocked at, at this article, and we actually filed an ethics complaint with the Associated Press, and we saw that we got them a little scared because we saw a little errant uh, reply all, and we could see that the CEO, the head of ethics, and the president were like trying to buy time to figure out what to do with us because we were we were making a complaint that they they you know violated the ethics of journalism and what right. they did. And uh, anyway, so. So that was the first kind of blow that came back at us. And, and then, you know, and I described this in the book, I'll just stop here, but, um, you know, and I, we can talk about it all you want, but, you know, what, what happened next is um, things like that continued to happen to us. So my, for instance, my review paper, it was a comprehensive review paper on all of the emerging data of ivermectin and COVID. And it passed uh, three rounds of rigorous peer review by four different peer reviewers. Three of them were senior scientists from the CDC and NIH. Uh, they were colleagues of uh, uh, old colleagues of Robert Malone, who was my editor of that journal. Um, and after passing peer review, they wouldn't publish the paper. 
And it was an online journal, and this is the winter of 2020-21, which is the still the, 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 the dying rates, the amount of deaths that we had that winter has never been surpassed since. And I, so we saw these hospitals getting ravaged, people filling hospitals, running out of ICU beds and all of that, and they weren't publishing my paper. And week after week went by, I was writing to the journal, asking what the issues were, and then I finally got fed up one day and I... I told the journal that I suspected scientific misconduct and that we as an organization were prepared to go public. And within two days, the chief editor of all that collection of journals was on the phone with Robert and informed Robert that they were retracting our paper. And they said that they were retracting the paper because they had received a complaint, an anonymous complaint, and they hired an anonymous third-party peer reviewer who reviewed our paper and found that our conclusions were not supported by the data, which goes against the other four peer reviewers that had, right. you know, rigorously attacked me on everything I was claiming, and I defended myself, and and they retracted the paper, and you know that's when we started to really know that the fix was in, that there was something really wrong going on, and um, and and so my education into how science works, how it's controlled, how it's been captured by uh, external forces, financial influences, um, sort of began then. That's when it got crystallized. And, and to put that into context, if you look at the publication output of the five of us who started the FLCCC, I think we have about 1,500 peer-reviewed publications. And all of our collective careers, which probably accumulate over 100 years in academic medicine, mm -hmm. We've never had a, page, uh, a paper retracted. And really, the only times you retract a paper is if there's uh, clear evidence of fraud um, or plagiarism. And neither of those things were true. It passed peer review, and then it right. got retracted before both. So I'll stop there, Jared, and say, you know, you know, I, I give you like, you know, the, the successes of my career, what we were trying to do in COVID, all good, right? All good. We got, we got corticosteroids right. But boy, we landed on a grenade when we identified ivermectin, and, and my life has never been the same since. And I can fast forward to saying that I'm now out of academia. Uh, three of the five of us, our careers have ended uh, in the FLCCC. We're all forced out of our hospitals. Um, Umberto Raduri, who had a 40-year career with the Veterans Administration, was forced to resign. Um, and... Uh, you know, we, we discovered that we entered a, into a war and it was a war not on, you know, I, although I call my book, uh, my book is called The War on Ivermectin, where I detail everything that happened. Um, it really is a war on repurposed drugs, on, on safe, you know, proven uh, medicines that have worked in other diseases that have been found to be efficacious in, in you know, rather profitable diseases. And when you infringe on those profits uh, and it's a cheap, cheap off patent drug that doesn't, you know, provide profit potential, um, you, you run into trouble. They come after you. You know, when you start threatening the bottom line of the pharmaceutical industry, and, and we didn't know that. I mean, we went in so naive. You know, I, here I am thinking when I gave testimony, it went viral, like, hey, we got the word out. You know, the world's going to embrace this new information. And I didn't expect a ticker tape parade, but maybe a nice thank you and I appreciate your work. Um, you know, and instead it was uh, the loss and ending of our careers. Yeah, it's a... It, it... You know, listening to you, because uh, unlike, I guess, a lot of people at that time, I was from pretty much from day one with COVID, I was, you know, digging deep into all of this stuff. And really, because of the, 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 
the place I come from, I already had a pretty healthy disrespect uh, for uh, what was going on in medical journals and the science that was being bought. Uh, and uh, I, I was I was watching this happen, but obviously I wasn't on the front line like you were. Uh, and and I think that one of the things that and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because as a medical doctor and an educator in medicine, uh, which I've never been anywhere near either of those places in my career as a guy who owns a health food store and recommends vitamins, like you said, for, <laughs> for issues uh, regarding uh, improving people's health. Right. Um, but as a doctor and someone who's in the thick of it, um, I imagine that your uh, what you call naivete is probably pretty rampant in that group of people that do what you do because you're just in there working, getting stuff done and not really paying attention to what's happening on the outside. 100%. So one of the things I've said in my journey over these last few years, my journey of discoveries and education, is that they don't teach you this in medical school. They don't teach you of the scope and the scale of pharmaceutical industry influence. Now, I was like you. So before COVID, I knew Big Pharma was bad. I knew they did bad stuff. But I will tell you, my lived experience of the presence of pharma in medicine you know, it was really kind of silly. My, what I saw, what I observed as pharma influence was like kind of benign and somewhat benign and peripheral, which is, you know, uh, pretty or handsome drug reps giving out pens and inviting you to dinner and trips, you know? So I thought it was just like marketing, you know, ch chicanery that they were doing, like right. it's on the periphery, just trying to sell their wares. And that, that, that wasn't surprising. It's capitalism. They're trying to make money. And that's where I thought the the corruption was, um, okay. is that they were overly promoting and marketing things that uh, of dubious importance, but um, uh, but they certainly could get that. They, they knew how to get doctors to prescribe, either by enticing gifts or really misinforming or overstating. And and that's really, I thought, where the corruption was. But, uh, you know, the sentence that you said where science is bought, you know, I, I then discovered over the next few years that not only the scope and the scale, which is to say that they literally run the medical journals. Like I did not know that before COVID. And for instance, I use the phrase, like I say, before COVID, I thought that the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the number one highest impact medical journal in the world, I thought only the best science and the best scientists were published. I mean, if you got published in New England Journal of Medicine, I mean, that made your career. I mean, you you could walk around like, you know, hot stuff in the hospital because you got a paper. And, the, you know, it was literally like the pinnacle of your career. Right. And, you know, I've come to discover, and this is open knowledge for decades, you know, former editors of those journals. Like, I always use the example of a Dr. Marsha Angel, A-N-G-E-L-L. She stepped down for her from her post as chief editor of the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. 20 years ago, she stepped down from her post and wrote a book about how pharma is controlling the trials and the journals. So, so it's not like this new discovery that I made in COVID. It was just like, they don't tell you this stuff. Right. No one teaches you this in medicine. So you're right. Most doctors, I think, are like me, which we really trust. We have an implicit faith and trust in this, the integrity and the, 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 the degree of science and objectivity of these journals. And it is the farthest thing from the truth. And that was a really sad discovery. And now I'm estranged from medicine, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's it has to be just an incredible um, shift in your entire consciousness, you know, from what you've done as a career for most of your life. It's a really, really interesting thing. And, and it was a crazy thing to watch. So now I have a question, though, that I'm, I'm really curious what your answer is going to be. I have an idea of what it might part of it might be. But 
Why do you think this actually happened? I mean, you talk about, you know, ivermectin is a cheap drug, uh, no patent on it. Anybody can buy it. Anybody can afford it. It's used worldwide on billions of people, all that stuff. And so we can understand from just a financial perspective, it's not a moneymaker. But is it just that? Or are there no. other reasons that you think ivermectin was suppressed? Yeah. So there's a few layers to that. And I, I will say this. So my first answer is for the last couple of years, up until maybe six months or eight months ago, I was laying everything at the feet of what you just said, big pharma and their profit incentives, right? Mm -hmm. That it was threatening their profits of their new ones like Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Right. Um, but it's bigger than that, right? So it not only threatened their pipeline products that they were coming out with, you know, you know, which is immediate global market, right? So it wasn't yeah. just like a, a chronic disease that affects 3% of the population. You literally have a world that is awash in this, you know, I'm not going to say hyped up pandemic, but yeah, there is elements of that. Um, I mean, you have a whole market, worldwide market that opened up overnight for these pricey pharmaceuticals. But really, it's that it threatened the global vaccination campaign, which was always the plan even before COVID. And that, that's very well documented, right? The simulation exercises of how to respond to a viral pandemic that was going to hit the world. The plan was always to come up with a vaccine that would be deployed globally, that would be able to counteract this pandemic. And, you know, the, the emergency youth author, authorization that the vaccines depended on required that no alternative effective therapy be identified. So, when you're talking about the entire world's machinery being, you know, sort of uh, engineered or geared up to produce these billions of vaccines with immense profits to pharma, little old ivermectin threatened it. And it's not just ivermectin. So my book is called The War on Ivermectin, but some of my colleagues could, write, could have written the book The War on Hydroxychloroquine. It was actually the same war. Same yeah. tactics. I mean, I, I could write the, the book, The War on Hydroxychloroquine. I think the closest is Bobby Kennedy's book called The Real Anthony Fauci, where he covers that in his first chapter. Very well referenced, very well detailed on what they did to hydroxychloroquine. But, but let's go further than just the financial profits, right? And, and the threatening of, against the vaccination campaign, right? Which threatened not only the profits, but I think there was a lot of true believers that the vaccine was the solution, right? To get life back on track and all you needed the vaccine. And right. And the number one public enemy of public health objectives in COVID was something called vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. They knew they had to destroy that within the population, otherwise they were never going to succeed at their goal. And so what would have fueled vaccine hesitancy more than anything else was the availability of a decades long, you know, one of the safest drugs in our pharma, pharmacopoeia uh, that's dirt cheap and widely available. I mean, they had to get rid of those types of drugs in order to propel that vaccine campaign. So that's that, that's a little bit another layer besides the, the profit incentives. But then I've also uh, been educated and learned about, you know, what this response was about and what the origins of this virus was and, and how it was viewed by our government and military. And, you know, Sasha Latipova, I, I credit her with this work, her and uh, Catherine Watts, who's a legal expert. They're the ones who dove deep in the contracts, looked in all this. But when you look at what these pharmaceutical companies did, pharma was not working for pharma. They were working for the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. All of the contracts to, to manufacture these vaccines were with the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense and the military were present in all of 
the, the COVID committees and the COVID responses, there was military in there because the entire government's COVID response was essentially a military countermeasure against a bioweapon. That's how it was viewed by our government. And so when, you know, when you're asking me about like, you know, what did ivermectin threaten? Like, here's me with my little testimony in December 8th, you know, proudly exclaiming that we have a solution. Uh-huh. And not only was I going up, uh, you know, I, it was I like jumping feet first into a decades long war on repurposed drugs with pharma, but now I'm actually presenting something that's very uncomfortable and inconvenient for our entire military industrial uh, complex, which was about responding to this in a very different way. Their response was not give ivermectin to everyone, which by the way, would have ended the pandemic. Had they instead distributed ivermectin to every household, every family, like they did in Uttar Pradesh, which is a chapter in my book. There, there is one place in the world where they did that. And the results are just nothing short of astonishing. In fact, what happened in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh, where there's, again, there's a chapter in my book, is I consider to be the greatest public health achievement in, in the history of public health. I mean, mm-hmm. they essentially wow. eradicated COVID in a northern state of 241 million people. That state alone would be like the 10th largest country. And in the borders of that state, by September of 2021, they'd effectively eradicated it. I mean, there was 67 out of 75 districts in that state had not one active case. That would be like the United States reporting that 40 of the 50 states had no COVID, not one active case. I mean, could you imagine that kind of result? And so- When that was in September of 21? Yep. September so we're two years beyond that, and we can't say that in the United States now. No, no, and 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 what the most um, disturbing thing about that chapter is the fact that even within India, their achievements, although celebrated, you know, there were newspaper headlines in major Indian newspapers showing what Uttar Pradesh had achieved. Except there's one problem with those newspaper reports: there was one word missing, and that word was ivermectin. They literally wrote newspaper articles showing that what Uttar Pradesh did was that they were aggressively testing, contact tracing, and quarantining. And that's how they achieved that result. They did not mention ivermectin. And so this is where it gets really, it's a very dark story when when you read the book of of what I learned on, on how the control of the media and the agencies and the journals how they're able to suppress and really distort, right? Because it's not just suppressing. I mean, I, everyone knows I've everyone knows the story of Ivermectin, but I will tell you, the vast majority of the population believe that it's a horse dewormer that only fringe quack, right wing anti-vaxxers believe is effective because the largest and best trials all showed it to be ineffective. Can we review the words largest and best? They yeah, were certainly the mean? largest. <laughs> yeah, it, they were not the best. And and that's where, you know, that's where I'm estranged from medicine, because I, I saw brazenly fraudulent trials conducted by pharma conflicted investigators with so many data manipulations and design manipulations of those trials. And they sailed to publication in the top journals of the world. And each time they sailed to publication, huge PR campaigns rippled across the globe. Headlines, New York Times. Ivermectin found to be ineffective in COVID, latest large, high quality, rigorous study finds. Right. You, know, you know that headline, right? Yep. That headline all across the world, every language, every major newspaper, every time one of those trials uh, was published. And and so I saw that, you know, there's the massive propaganda that was uh, engineered to get to get people to believe that it didn't work, right? And, and my favorite uh, definition or the best definition of propaganda is 
that it's a story or a message to get you to think or act in a certain way. And, and once I came to understand what propaganda is, a story or a message that gets you to think or act in a certain way, I saw the phenomenal fearsome power of propaganda because I saw it being played out and I saw that basically it led the majority of the population and physicians, right? Physicians were really the, the victims of this propaganda as well because it rained sure. down from the journals, from the agencies, from Fauci's mouth. And so every self-respecting physician around the world, ivermectin. Who would give anyone ivermectin for COVID? It clearly doesn't work. And any patient or family who asked to give ivermectin to their dying loved one, that's ridiculous. We're not going to traffic in ineffective medicines. And so you saw that those stories and messages uh, really got people to act, to not seek it out, to not prescribe it. And, uh, and they even went further than propaganda, right? They actually, you know, uh, I call it, there's another chapter in my book called the, the Horse Dewormer PR Campaign. And that was a public relations campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, it was completely constructed in collusion with the agencies who put out false reports of massive overdoses and poisonings, which are actually not factually based. And then then they got the AMA, the American Medical Association, the American Board of Pharmacies to in an unprecedented act, historical act. They put out a position statement in the middle of COVID, which was headlined a call for the immediate cessation of the prescribing of ivermectin for COVID. So they're literally calling worldwide to stop prescribing ivermectin for COVID because, because it's so dangerous, Jared, right? I mean, have we ever done that for fentanyl? No, we have an opioid epidemic. We have hundreds of thousands of young people in this country dying every year, but we don't have an immediate cessation of prescribing of fentanyl, right? No. Um, but suddenly they're going, that, that's how, you know, I hope if your listeners listen, that, that that's how it just brazen. And, 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 and just illogical and transparent, really, it was, the, the war on ivermectin. It has to be viewed. And that's, that's what my hope. I'm going to finish for a second here and just saying, you know, as an educator, I think the reason why I like to teach is I, I just love learning things that I think are important for people to know and sharing that with them so that they can go forth and take good action and, and help others. And I think that was the goal of my book. I, I made a commitment once I learned that that essentially what was happening with ivermectin that it was literally the focus of a massive disinformation campaign. Um, and in the book, I define what disinformation is, and I use the article called "The Disinformation Playbook," which was actually written in 2017 by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And they go over the history of disinformation, what those tactics are. And it's called the Disinformation Playbook. And they, they name the tactics after American football plays. So it's called uh, the fake, the fix, the screen, the blitz, the diversion. And when I read that article in March of 2021, this is four months after my testimony, it was like light bulbs went off. Like suddenly I saw the world crystal clear because like I said, my life had gone sideways since that testimony. I couldn't understand why the world was behaving the way it was. And then when I read that article, it was like a click. I was like, oh boy, me and the FLCCC are literally in a disinformation war where the other side is trying to kill ivermectin. And we were like the bad news bears up against the Yankees, Jared, you know, and so, you know, and, and we, we took our hits and, and actually that's one of the tactics, right? It's called the blitz. The blitz is when they harass researchers who produce this inconvenient science. And the example that they give in the article of, of the Blitz is one that everyone knows, right? It was uh, Professor Bennett Amalu, the guy who first described chronic traumatic encephalopathy amongst NFL players, right? Will, there's a movie about that. I haven't watched the movie, but you know, it's about his story. 
he came across this finding that these retired football players had all these micro hemorrhages and that's why they're becoming sometimes psychotic with headaches and suicidal and even uh, homicidal. And when he tried to bring that forth, that's very inconvenient science to the NFL. And what they tried to do to that researcher, just a pathologist trying to do what I was trying to, which is bring forth important information that people should know. Yeah. And they tried to destroy him. And um, and by the way, just to put it in context, the NFL is a $9 billion industry. Right. The pharmaceutical industry is $1 trillion. So who do you want to pick a fight with, Jared? You want to pick a fight with the NFL or with Big Pharma? And so I'll just stop there. I, I Hopefully I've communicated what, what, what my life and – the lives of all of us, right? It's not just how it affected me. I mean, I got to see needless death all around the world for the last three years, and I, I screened as much as I could from the sidelines. I, I We all tried to bring forth this knowledge. Our, our team at the FLCCC, our donors, you know, our website, our testimonies. I mean, we've tried to do anything, but we had to do it in a sea of censorship and propaganda. I mean, all of my videos were taken down. Like any interview I did with anyone – you know, uh, in fact, I did an interview with Matt Taibbi, the famous uh, journalist. He did an interview with me about two years ago, and he called me the ghost of the Internet because everywhere I went to do interviews, even with very popular podcasters like Brett Weinstein and John Campbell and wherever I went, those videos were immediately taken down and some of the podcasters were demonetized. And so you saw this this really aggressive attack towards me and the science I was trying to bring forth. And I'll give you a, a kind of a funny example is that a year ago, I gave a lecture at an intravenous, at a vitamin C conference. And they invited me because of my research and expertise in use of intravenous vitamin C mm -hmm. and sepsis. And so I gave a lecture, didn't mention ivermectin once, didn't mention COVID once. I was really just talking about its use in sepsis based on my former research. And at the end of the conference, the organizer posted my lecture on YouTube taken down within an hour for violating community guidelines. This is a lecture of my own data, that I, the research that I did. So there's an algorithm out there that's looking for Pierre Corey, and it just takes me down whatever I, whatever I say. So I don't know if this is going on YouTube, Jared, but uh, good luck. Yeah, well, uh, I, I stay clear of YouTube for that very reason, but uh, we'll get we'll get the word out to the, as many people as we can. So I do have a, a few what I think are pretty important questions in terms of the aftermath of all of this, not just ivermectin, but the censorship and the disinformation. And the, of course, you know, people saying the things that I was saying that you were saying were labeled as misinformation. Uh, when Rogan talked about his use of ivermectin, that was misinformation, right? And of course, all of that stuff actually has legitimate backing. It actually happened. We have evidence. Uh, nothing is hidden there, and yet it's misinformation. And so everything got, everything became very backwards, in my view. The, the misinformation was truth, and the and and everybody calling it misinformation was lying. And so it's kind of crazy stuff. But there was a major, major fallout that I don't want to overlook here. So in Utah, on my way in to do this interview today, I saw a billboard. And it said that if you're over five years old, you've got to get the COVID vaccination because it is the best way to protect your children from COVID-19. I work with an organization called React 19. You and I have sat down with Bree Dressen, who yep. leads that organization, and talked about this. And... We have a real problem that is ongoing in this in the world, uh, but of course uh, in every state in this union, where the misinformation is coming from taxpayer money. I paid for that billboard. 
Dr. Corey, yep. right? It came yep. from the Utah Department of Health, and I pay that. I pay that advertising. I am personally, as a taxpayer in the state of Utah and in this country, and you obviously as well, are paying for the propaganda campaign that yeah. is being used against yep. things like ivermectin and then also to promote things like this vaccine. Now, on the one hand, we have a very, very effective, very inexpensive, uh, very safe treatment in ivermectin. On the other hand, we have this thing that's been called safe and effective, but what's the evidence of the safety and efficacy of that vaccine? And in your opinion, why should people be concerned? So I'm going to I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Um, the spike protein is the most toxic and lethal protein that we've ever studied in medicine, period. End of story. And on what do I base that? Well, I'll just give you what I think is the most compelling data, because, again, based on our conversation, you want to go to the peer-reviewed journals, the high-impact journals in the world, and try to find out the truth? What you'll find out from those journals is that the vaccine is safe and effective, right? right? And that it's even safe in pregnancy, right? You'll eat, you can find papers where they do analysis, observational analysis of databases showing that it's safe and effective. Okay. So that's, that's what the peer-reviewed journal sources will tell you. But what I find the most compelling data is that, and I wrote an op-ed on this, it was published in USA Today about a month ago. Um, and, and a man named Ed Dowd, a former uh, managing director of BlackRock, who's you know a data guy, and he he saw this signal. But and the life insurance industry has seen this signal. But we have an unprecedented rise, un historically unprecedented rise in excess mortality of young people, and it started with the vaccination campaign, right? Um, what happened was in late 2021, a CEO of One America, which is a $100 billion life insurance company, he reported at this random Chamber of Commerce meeting in Indiana that they were seeing a year-to-year -year rise in 18 to 64-year-olds, working-age Americans with group life insurance policies. They were seeing a 38% increase in death claims starting in 2021. And he said, he put it in context, he said a 10% year-to-year rise is considered a one in 200 year event. It's that rare because remember actuaries, right? And how do they make their money? They know the rates of accidents, death and disease, right. and that's how they price their products, right? To help protect you from those events. And so here you have an industry, which from one year to the next in their healthiest sector that they've insured, right? Which is our young group life insurance policyholders, which are generally fortune 500 employees, which are historically the healthiest folks in society. Well, suddenly, they're dying at rates we've never seen outside of wartime, and no one's talking about it. And not only that, but that data is mirrored in the disability data. So if you look at Ed Dowd's work and all of his work and analyses with his group of PhDs and statisticians is that finance technologies, and finance is spelled PH, so it's PHinance Technologies, mm -hmm. um, .org, I think, or com. And you can see all the analysis. They're using government data to show this insane rise in disability and death with, with the vaccination campaign. I they're, they're, and we already know VAERS blew up, right, with adverse events and deaths within weeks of the rollout. I mean, the data's been there for anyone who wants to use it, but just like with ivermectin, they've distorted, dismissed um, all of that data just to push on this. It, 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 it's actually a dystopian world that I've come to realize we live in, the, the, the fearsome power and, and really the lack of any ability to push back. I mean, they're literally trying to promote boosters to five-year-olds at this point in the pandemic when yeah. literally everyone's had COVID. We know from the data that five-year-olds have 
zero risk of anything serious with COVID, or, or literally near zero risk, and they want to propagate a vaccine for a mutagenic COVID. I mean, it fails on about 18 different levels of what is common sense and fails the data. And so um, you're right. I, I think that is a disturbing observation that you just made, right? Is that you're driving in the work and you're seeing a billboard that's lying to you that you paid for. Yep. You're paying to be told lies by agencies. And I want to be clear, like it's not like committed people with careers in public health that are doing this. It's really those that are in authority in those agencies, which are literally under the control of pharma. Like if you want to be objective and put out good sound guidance that goes against the interests of the pharmaceutical industry, you can do that. You can certainly do that as a, as a public health leader or authority just not sure how long your career is going to be around. You're going to be in that position. And right. most people know that. And so they, they tend not to ask a lot of questions or push back. What comes out of the journals and from Fauci and the feds, you know, it's it's the best of public health, right? Remember what I said? Like I thought New England Journal of Medicine was the best science and best scientist there. I think most of the population feels that what comes out of those agencies are the best public health and epidemiologists and scientists. Like they, they literally have somehow to this day, they still retain the implicit faith and trust of the population in those institutions. And I'm just shocked that this country and most of the population is not aware of the concept of regulatory capture, right? It's when government is literally being controlled and taken over by those with financial or corporate interests. And I've had to watch a pandemic of people dying needlessly and suffering from the vaccine without knowing that they're listening to agencies that have been thoroughly captured decades ago by the pharmaceutical industry. And so it's it's a very, very sad sight to have to watch every day. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too, because even, you know, if you want to make it even more political, now we have got this guy who's a real thorn in the side of everybody running for president, right? This RFK mm -hmm. Jr. guy, right? This anti-vaxxer. Uh, Love him. Uh, <laughs> Love him. <laughs> and I've been following RFK Jr. for a long time, and uh, I, I am, I'm not, I don't even know how to word it, uh, Dr. Corey. I'm not surprised, but I'm still taken aback, I guess, by what's happened with his, the smear campaign on him as he gets interviewed by all these various news outlets. And some of them actually let him talk and, and deliver the message that he wants to deliver. Mostly though, he's been very wise, I think, to go on independent podcasts as opposed to counting on CNN or Fox News or those yep. guys to, you know, uh, report the truth. But when you hear anything about him on the news, you hear the first things out of their mouth is, you know, RFK Jr., known anti-vaxxer, disinformation specialist. You know, they're going to call him everything you possibly can to smear that. But what is happening and why I still have hope that we can actually do something about all of this is that that guy's getting like 20 percent in the polls. Yep. People are actually listening to what he has to say. And it's very, very interesting to find that now we have someone with a with a really, really big name, right? Is there a bigger political name in America than the Kennedy name uh, coming at this, running for president, talking about these things? But every time he talks, he gets smeared and censored and everything else. So that continues to happen. He's, I believe he's currently in a lawsuit or more than one lawsuit uh, for being censored uh, on social media for the message he's trying to deliver about running for president, 
right? Yes. Like what you said, I'm talking about vitamin C. Why are they pulling that down, right? Yeah. So, uh, so we are seeing some things shift, but back to the vaccine, because I think this is, we don't have a, a whole lot of time left. I think this is really important for people to understand. Before we started talking, you said, well, my primary focus right now is helping people who've been injured by the COVID vaccine. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So um, a year and a half ago, you know, I, I'd lost my third job. It was clear that I was no longer employable in, in academia or really in the health system. Um, you know, the last job I lost, they, they, they forced me out with an un, uh, a false accusation. And, and I knew it was coming because my partners who had hired me, I was a contract worker. I was an independent contractor. They told me they were under immense pressure by the administration to get rid of Corey. And they protected me for about six months. And then finally, they just said, Pierre, we don't need you anymore. And, you know, they they, they were told something false about me. And they, they were like, listen, we just can't do it. And so I lost my job. And I was working for the FLCCC. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like, I'm a doctor, man. <laughs> like, it's just how I'm built. It's what I like to do. I, I just love the challenge of medicine and helping sick people and figuring out how to help them. And and so I started a practice and um, it was clear to me then how many people were injured, how many people were suffering, how many people were disabled and how few, how little help they were getting. They were going to system doctors. And this is in the height of the PSYOPs campaign of the safe and effective. And right. I mean, you try to tell a doctor a year and a half ago, like now it's a little bit better. It's not totally better. But a year and a half ago, if you told a doctor that you were injured or made sick by the vaccine, I mean, there was like total cognitive dissonance and very negative interaction. I mean, the poor patients who were so sick and trying to convince the doctors they were sick from the vaccine, it was really bad. And so not only were they not being, they were being abandoned and gaslit, um, but no effective therapies were being offered. So me and my partner, we started a practice. I got really intrigued by the disease. And that's all I've been doing is studying and figuring out how to treat it. And you know, I have an approach. Um, I use many different therapies because nothing is, works perfect. There's no cure for it. But we have a whole list of effective therapies. The problem is it's so challenging. It's the most challenging disease I've treated in my career is that, for instance, I'll have a medicine that works in like four out of 10. I just don't know which four it works in. But right. when I try it 10 times, I'll find these profound benefits in four, really modest in a couple, and then it does nothing in the others. And mm -hmm. And then I'll, you know, I'll, for instance, I give, always give an example, like I'll see two patients. For instance, ivermectin is, is probably the, it is the most effective medicine in vaccine injury. I would say 70% of my practice are ivermectin responders with varying responses. Sometimes right. they're transformative. Sometimes they're quite modest. Um, but it, what's so strange is I'll see two patients who present kind of same stories, same symptom burden, the same degree of illness, and ivermectin will completely help patient A and do nothing in patient B. And on their clinical presentation, on their lab work, on all this, like I can't tell the difference as to why one was a responder and one wasn't. So, you know, I tend to do treatment trials and I've been trialing many, many different therapies. And, you know, the ones that don't work so well, I, I, uh, I abandon. And the ones that, that do work, that are safe, that have been proven, uh, you know, uh, have pretty sustained responses, I keep. And I, I find it really a fascinating, very challenging disease. Um, it's really complex. Uh, but I work with a whole network of other doctors on the front lines trying to help these vaccine injured. And and we're figuring stuff out. I mean, we, we, we're we constantly sharing our clinical experiences and insights. And and like I said, my, my approach is constantly evolving. And it's probably the most um, dynamic and challenging and really inspiring point in my career because I'm literally helping those in our society uh, for whom they cannot get help otherwise. And um, 
you know, I don't want to market, but I do want to make sure people know that there's a resource because my practice, we do telehealth in all 50 states. It's it's drpierrecorey.com. So it's D-R-P-I-E-R-R-E-K-O-R-Y.com. And, um, you know, if you know someone's suffering and hasn't been served well by uh, other approaches, um, you know, have them reach out to us. And, you know, we're certainly going to try to help. Well, we'll link to all of those things in the uh, in the show notes and description as well for people listening. So you've got access to this. We'll link to the book. We'll link to FLCCC uh, and uh, and to drpierrecorey.com, right? Is that what you said? Yep. So we'll get all those links in there. So then I, I, I thought it was actually really interesting what you just said there, though, before I let you go. You said that uh, this is a real a real challenging disease to treat. Uh, it's being called vaccine injury from those who are willing to admit that the vaccine could potentially injure somebody. And you're calling it a disease. And I just think that's kind of interesting because that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, but I don't know that I, it's like being called that. Jared, let me let me actually help because I think I probably is. I, I wasn't um, specific enough because I'm immersed in this. So um, here here's uh, I think this is going to be very helpful to your listeners. Um is that when I see the ill effects of the vaccines, I actually put them in two categories. One are what I call vaccine injuries or complications. And the way I think about those problems is that they're what I call single organ problems. So things like myocarditis, pericarditis, stroke, okay. heart attack, you know, uh, even a condition like Guillain-Barre or lupus or something like that. So they, they tend to be traditional diagnostic categories, which are really unfortunate, often and tragic. But, but I would say system doctors generally, they know how to diagnose that. They don't know how to attribute to the vaccine, but generally those are the things that happen. That's not what I see. So what I specialize is something different, is what I call post-vaccine injury syndrome. So what's the difference between a syndrome and an injury or a syndrome and a complication? A syndrome my definition is that it's a constellation of symptoms that develop in temporal association to the vaccine. And what does that syndrome look like? Just very briefly, it's literally nearly identical to the disease that's called myalgic encephalitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. And the reason why I say it's nearly identical is it has all of the standard criteria to meet the diagnosis of ME or CFS. But it's got more. It, it, the, the patients are sicker than traditional descriptions of MECFS. They have a much wider variety of symptoms, especially neurologic, and they tend to be quite sicker than traditional CFS patients. Or well, that, that's probably not exactly true because CFS can be pretty de devastating. But so you're right. When I say disease, my practice really focuses on treating the syndrome. I don't see the strokes, the heart attacks, the pericarditis. They, that, they're not coming to me for that. And that, there's a reason for that. Is because I think they're reasonably well served by the medical system in those diagnostic categories, where it's been long described for decades that our medical system is not equipped or trained, nor has really good solutions for those chronic illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome. Those patients right. have long been underserved and undertreated and, and poorly managed. And and the reason why is because it's really hard to treat. And, and you know, that COVID and the spike protein causes it is not new, right? CFS has been long known to be associated with uh, post-viral syndromes, whether it's from Epstein-Barr or Giardia or Lyme. And so, um, yeah, it's a wicked disease. So you're, you're right. I'm glad you brought that up because when I say disease, I'm really talking about patients suffering from the syndrome, which is very similar to long COVID, right? So long COVID and vaccine injury 
are also nearly identical. The only differences I see in the two is that the vaccine injured are on average sicker than long haulers, with some exceptions, but definitely on average much sicker. And in long haul COVID, you can see patients that have, you know, proportion will have uh, persistent pulmonary disease from their COVID episode. Whereas the vaccine, for some reason, I'm a pulmonologist, generally doesn't affect the lung tissue. I, I haven't seen really bad lung problems with the vaccine. There, there are case reports of it, but it's pretty rare. But in my practice, very few of the vaccine-injured syndromes have uh, direct involvement of the lungs. They have breathing problems, but it's not lung tissue-derived. Anyway, so hopefully that's not too much information. But I'm glad you, you called me out on that because I think when people hear vaccine injury, you know, it's all the stuff in the papers and everything. But I'm really talking about the syndrome, which is really this chronic debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome, sort of like long COVID, um, but worse. Yeah, I wanted to clear that up for people because I don't think that people that haven't experienced vaccine injury or know someone close that has vaccine injury really even know what it means or what it looks like. So I really appreciate you describing that for us. So the last thing I'll say is that uh, if you've enjoyed this interview uh, with Dr. Corey, which I have immensely, and you want to hear more, uh, he will be speaking at Your Health Freedom Symposium in uh, West Jordan, Utah on October 7th. This is an awesome opportunity. Spoke there uh, last year. I'll be speaking there as well. And uh, if you're anywhere near Utah, uh, if you can figure out a way to get down here, you've got to do it. It's at Your Health Freedom freedom.org. That's where you can get your tickets. And uh, there will be, I think there's a dozen speakers on a variety of different topics having to do with the politics of health, uh, having to do with um, uh, uh, advocacy uh, with this, and also just living your best, healthiest life. It's a phenomenal event. I highly encourage you to attend. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for not allowing yourself to be silenced, even though they've certainly tried. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I appreciate you for all that you do. Uh, Thanks for joining me on Vitality Radio. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again in October. That's great, Jared. I'm glad you're going to be there. It's going to be fun. Thank you. Take care now. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.